back to I Talk Shit and Read. This is Ro, and today I've got a special guest for you. We're being joined by one of the writers from the Little Fires Everywhere writing room, Shannon in Houston. She is the lead writer for episode six, my personal favorite, The Uncanny. And Joy and I got the opportunity to sit down and spend some time asking her some questions and discussing the show. Okay, Shannon, thank you so much. We are so excited to talk to you about everything Little Fires Everywhere. So, you know, thank you for joining us. Yes, of course. I'm so excited. I'm so excited to chat with you guys. Yeah, so I kind of want to start from the beginning and how you got to the writer's room for Little Fires Everywhere, as well as other writer's rooms that you've been a part of or in the process of being a part of. I noticed that you were a former TV editor for Pace Magazine. I wanted to ask, what was that transition from editorial to a writer's room for you? That's a great question. And it's different for everybody. You know, I like to tell my version of what happened, but Obviously, there's no blueprint or anything like that. But the way it happened for me was I was falling in love with TV and I was writing about TV and film. And I know that, again, not true for everybody, but for me, what worked was finding the stuff that I loved so much and writing about what was so specific about it to me, like doing this thing that I think I had avoided for years, which was making it personal, saying, I actually love the show because I have mommy issues and here are like five of the mommy issues I have. And that's what's speaking to me in this TV show. Um, I love this show because I am adopted and I was in foster care. And so sibling narratives are really complicated and exciting to me and kind of letting myself be more emotional and more personal with my writing, even though I was writing as a critic or because I was writing as a critic, however you want to read it. So I think that that's kind of where I started to find my voice. And I didn't even think I had one or that I needed to find one, but that's where it came from was me kind of letting myself be more personal and more specific about the shows that I was relating to and developing in, in slow and small ways, relationships with some of those creators, people like, Jill Soloway and Misha Green, who I was like obsessed with and was, you know, I wanted to do some version of what they were doing and allowing myself to be vulnerable and respectful, but reach out and say, I love this thing that you're doing. I'm kind of trying to do it. Maybe you can look at this thing that I wrote or, you know, um, but yes, developing relationships with some of those people. And eventually that tr that translated into um, Jill Soloway's production company teaming up with me to sell a pilot to Amazon. And once uh, we sold that pilot, everything kind of kicked off from there. That's amazing. That's such a wonderful story. Thank you for sharing that. You mentioned Jill Soloway and Misha Green. Throughout this process and, and throughout this transition into the writer's room, selling pilots, things of that nature, what are other, who are other writers and producers that you have considered your mentors or someone to lean on as you were making this move? I don't think I would pick one person. I would say that in every writer's room, there has always been a writer or a showrunner that I have stepped aside with and said, like, I love this thing that you did here, or I, or can you explain this to me? Or what should I be doing better? And I know everybody hasn't had that experience, but for the most part, I'm, I get good responses as far as like good answers. Um, I've been told when I'm doing something wrong or when I'm not pushing myself hard enough. I've been told like that, you know, there's a word that I overuse in a pilot that I shouldn't keep using, you know, like things like that. So I don't, I don't, 
necessarily feel like it's been one person. Obviously, Jill Soloway did a huge thing in helping me first write a pilot and then bringing it to Amazon. Misha Green took a chance on me by, and you know, inviting me to come work on Lovecraft Country on HBO. That was my third TV show. And so, so I, you know, those two people have done huge things. Uh, but again, like a lot of the writers that I've worked with um, in the love in the Lovecraft room, Ihoma, Sonia, Jay, the last room that I worked on, Ramla Muhammad, uh, Liz Tigalar, Little Fires Everywhere, Attica Locke. Like I've, I think I've been lucky to have people, a lot of people in mentoring positions in that way. And I do, I would also say that even if you don't have that, if you if you don't feel like you have that right now, like I feel like I've always watched movies and TV and I've always listened to music and whether I was aware of it or not I was being mentored in some way there were there were people reaching out to me with their art and I felt like I was it, it sounds very arty farty but like I was in conversation with them whether I saw it that way or not but looking back and looking at what a lot of my influences are I'm like that's mentorship too so I would say that even if you don't for those people who aren't in the industry like there are other ways that you're being mentored that you might not even be aware of. That's actually a very good point in terms of consuming the art and kind of understanding this writer this producer this director's kind of style and and how do you Mm -hmm. you know adapt to that or like how do you learn from that when you were finding your voice and changing over from being a critic to writing into a more thing it's kind of interesting the places where you said somebody told me I was doing something wrong you know but someone who's previously edited other people it's it's interesting when you're on the other end of getting that information so um and it hurt (laughs) it hurt and then you go well I asked for help and now I'm getting it so I, I, and I didn't mean to cut you off, but oh, no. it's funny, as you said that I wanted to be clear, it doesn't always feel good, but you take it in and you take, and you take what you need from it. Well, it seems like you've incorporated everything that you're learning. So what really drew you to Little Fires everywhere? everywhere? Because the, I've read Lovecraft Country. I'm super excited for it. So when Joy first mentioned your name, first thought in my head, I was like, I know, I know that name, but I don't know it from this. I know it from my yeah. other book. Yeah, so Lovecraft Country is kind of like, you know, all the way over in the horror lane. And then you're over here now and you had to switch to a mindset of being like family drama and like full drama. So what drew you to this project? Lovecraft Country is also a family drama with monsters, horror, all kinds of things. So in an odd way, it wasn't as crazy of a transition as you might think. Mm -hmm. Um, And I love family dramas and those are the stories that I want to tell. So What's cool about knowing that I love family drama is I do feel like you could plot me into any genre or any show and I would still know what to do there. I will say I was nervous about Lovecraft because I was like, is this really my, like, do I know how to do these things? But I was excited to learn to do those things and also to realize at the end of the day, this is a family story and and I know how to tell those. So with Little Fires Everywhere, similar thing of like, ooh, family drama, I'm in. Mommy issues, yes, please. I'm adopted. I was in foster care. I have the mommy issues. Um, and then I was like, I don't know. It was it was like a, a lot of different things lined up. You know, then finding out that the show was set in Shaker Heights. I graduated from high school in Cleveland. My first apartment was right around the corner from Shaker Heights. Cleveland and Shaker Heights are two completely different worlds. But just knowing that I still had something in common with this novel and and knowing that there was this adoption storyline that was in there. And not only am I adopted, but I've realized in 
conversations with people, I don't share the exact same views that a lot of a, a adopted people share. And I've been interrogating the notion of adoption for a long time. And so all of all of those things. And then of course, you say Carrie Washington and Reese Witherspoon. And I'm like, yes, please. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, um, I'm not saying no. <laughs> yes, I would like to write on this show. Thank you. And and so so that's what drew me to the project and knowing that there were going to be a lot of women in the room and that my hope was like that we would get to go to some dark places. And I did get the sense that Liz, the showrunner Liz Tigelar, was okay with that. And that's what I was really excited about. I think we kind of went there. I hope that it came through. What do you mean you think? I'm sorry. We're going to segue yeah. straight into talking about The Uncanny because that episode, as far as I'm concerned, is such a pivot point of Little Fires Everywhere. Like, it's the one episode that truly is a demarcation from the book because the entire Elena flashback cutaway scene story that you had to come up with, and bravo, by the way, um, doesn't exist outside of throwaway comments in the story. And you had to take right. like a throwaway comment about a boyfriend before Bill and turn that into a whole moment. And so I was just really curious when you were coming up and thinking about how you wanted to, to have this moment, because you not only had to encapsulate their past, you had to keep it with the voices that had already been established from the for five previous episodes. So in addition to kind of like deciding what you wanted to pull from the book and from what the other writers, when they were taking the lead on episodes had put in, what was kind of your you know thought process in putting together the uncanny and us taking us back in time? Yeah, so I think, um, and thank you. I'm glad you liked it. Um, I, I think my remote. <laughs> yeah, we, we texted each other immediately after. It was like, no, this is it. Like, the show's been fantastic leading up to it, but it was... Yeah. Uh, I am point, in four that was the group moment. texts that all collectively oh, yeah. lost their minds as yeah. of the uncanny. So that was it. That was it. That was yeah. the that was yeah. the pivotal That's episode. The moment. Absolutely. So please share with us your thoughts on how you I got will, there. I will. And you know, the with Elena, and this was a this was a challenge. We had this fucking awesome backstory for Mia. We're going to New York, 80s. We're doing art. Um, very early on, I was like, Pauline needs to be Black. Please, please, please. I need to tell this story about these two Black women mentoring each other, loving each other, going further than that, all of those things. Like, you know, I really want to tell that story. And we thought, like, what are we going to do with Elena and give her something where when you're in Elena's scenes, you're not like pining to be back with Mia, even though that may happen anyway. But like we we wanted to we we did look at it like this is now sort of almost like a competition in storylines. Like we need to come hard with Elena. And the questions that we started asking ourselves, how do you get an Elena? How, where does this person come from? You don't just wake up and start color coding your calendar. You don't just wake up and decide that, you know, all of the lunch bags are going to be labeled and the pancakes are going to be in those letter shapes and that there's always the, uh, the picture with the kids. Like that person does not come from nowhere. That person comes from something. And that's kind of also what the, what the whole show is about. Where do you get these people? you have a town like shaker well how do you get a town like shaker well first you have to have an america and then you have to t have a town that decides we're not going to be like the rest of america we're better than that and this is how we're going to show it and then we realize that there's all kinds of lies within that this this mythic town so elena comes from shaker so we have shaker and shaker is a character and we build from that and then elena has this combative relationship with her 
daughter. Well, where does that come from? And this is where a lot of the moms in the room, the parents had to lay their shit on the line and be like, okay, look, for me, I have a child who I have always called my difficult child. And over the years, I've had people point out to me that he's actually not necessarily more difficult than the other children, but I was going through a particular thing when he was born and I was struggling with my own things and I was dealing with losses that had nothing to do with this child. And I had to look at it and after a long time and I'm still dealing with it, be like, I'm putting shit onto this child who is actually just acting like a completely normal child. There are some people who have said that um, Izzy, they, they read Izzy in episode six as a colicky baby. And that's one interpretation, but she's also just a baby. We never said she was colicky. Yeah, Fucking I always just cry. thought that she was responding to Elena's energy. Like, cause I mean, I was a nanny. I, I was who people called when they were having difficulty. Cause I was a nanny. My mom was a foster child oh, caretaker. Wow. And uh, like, I went through all that training. And then after I was like, well, I don't sleep. So I used to be the nighttime nanny. I would come in when it was time to like dinner or homework, put kids to bed. I was like, that baby knows her mother is unhappy. Yes, I think that's, I think it's so true that there's a feeding off of, of the energy. So Elena comes into this pregnancy already devastated. And we had to introduce Elena's mother because again, how do you get an Elena? Well, we have to go back to mom. And I fucking love that scene between the two of them. And I didn't know I was going to love it so much, but the actress is so brilliant. And you can see just in like a few short exchanges, Elena is in our show, this privileged white woman. And in this moment, she is being told you actually don't have a choice. Like there's nothing blocking you from going and getting an abortion other than your mother is telling you, we don't do that. Those things are not meant for people like us. And I can't remember where exactly that line came from in the room, but I, I, I just thought that that was an interesting complication in the privilege story of like what happens when you have access to a thing and somebody is just telling you you're not allowed to have that thing that's bizarre and uncomfortable and now you're you're carrying this fourth child and your husband is telling you he's gonna help no the fuck he's not and now the baby's crying and you need to go get a pacifier but it, but in general it was about like and and there is a line in the book that that celeste wrote so beautifully and it is mia interrogating elena and saying what did you give up so that's part of what we're trying to answer in episode six. And that's what Jamie's saying. Like, you gave up on me. You gave up on Paris. And it's not Paris. It's just, like, other things that are not Shaker Heights you gave up on. And that's what you're longing for. And that's why you're standing at this payphone making this phone call. And even though you end up running back to Shaker Heights, there's that thing lingering in the back of your mind. And when you see Mia that thing feels attacked because you're looking at a person who seems to have, who seems to do whatever the fuck she wants. And then we find out that that's not entirely true about Mia. She's running away from things too. Yeah. Well, it pulled loss and rejection as themes to the forefront of the episode, but it did in a way that you don't generally tend to speak about. Like when you were talking about, I mean, several of my friends, I went to a PWI and like the moment where the mother looked at her and said, we don't do that one of my entire text groups is just not with white girls because I, I love watching messy white girl TV with white girls. It's just glorious and happy making. Same. But the conversation it strikes, she's like, oh, she must have attended the same con conference on mothering that my mom did. She's like, yeah. one girl just literally wrote in, type, in all cap letters, flashback. 
I'll talk to y'all later. I was like, are you okay? Do I need to call you? She's like, I just need a minute and more wine. So, but it was so smoothless because presenting what you did about Mia and her family and the expectations that they had for her. And um, I don't know how many times I screamed at the screen. Y'all need to stop saying she going to end up a hoe. You bring it into an existence. But it was just beautifully done because I was like, do y'all know my aunties? All five of them? Do you know them? But on the other hand, you had the same equity that you gave to Elena when you would think hers would be more of the milksop story or you'd see her past and there wouldn't be any empathy. And I was angry at you because I was like, see, now I got to understand why she's messed up and I don't like her. How dare you? Yeah. But yeah, so you use loss and rejection and, and you put a different spin on looking at those themes within a familial environment that then made you have to think about them in terms of agency and womanhood and the expectation and supposed to, because as much as people think they're running around here, I'm a feminist, I don't do this, I am empowered, I have control, supposed to is huge. And uh-huh. for Elena, it ended up in a color-coded board of what my children doing. And I only smashed my husband on Saturdays as punishment for the fact that every time he looked at me, I got pregnant. So right. I'll see you Saturday. Don't talk to me yes. this week. <laughs> Amen. And I want to say something too about the empathy that you feel. And when I wrote the episode, I struggled because I was like, I'm. there are certain things I'm not going to let Elena off the hook for, namely racism. And there's, I hope, no moment in the episode where you're like, oh, that's why she called the cops on Mia. I totally get it. She's absolved. No. What I'm really targeting in that episode and what I what we wanted to target as a group is that relationship with Izzy. And and at the end of the show, and we talked about this at great length too, I don't think we absolve Elena, but she says the name Izzy when she takes the feather out of the cage in that in the in the finale. And we are trying to close the chapter on that story, but the Karen element of Elena is real. And I can feel sympathy for her as a mother in episode six and not absolve her of those things and not let her off the hook for all of those, those other things. And again, we used her mother to show, you know, her mother was on the board of uh, the integration board for Shaker. This is another reason why Elena is who she is and can't imagine a world where she's doing anything wrong, racist, problematic, whatever you want to call it, because of what she comes from. And we have that little, you know, that little conversation about what did it actually mean to integrate Shaker? Well, come to find out it meant that they were giving money to white people to stay. It really didn't mean what we thought it meant when we first started talking about it. So uh, so those little things are in there. So yeah, I, I, th- I my goal was tell the story of Elena help people to understand this relationship with Izzy, which I can identify with having gone through a similar thing and also tell the story of like who, what and who Elena comes from. Speaking to more on nodding like people off the hook for the racism. I read little fires everywhere and I don't know why. I think it's because Celeste left space in her reading, in her writing for the reader 
to be able to kind of bring some of what they understood about their experience or things that they had witnessed to it. So Mia has always been coded black for me, even though I knew affirmatively in the front of my mind, she wasn't. But mm-hmm. because there was that space and that air, I'm like, I was like, my mom is cleaning people's houses. She's worked in the bank and on the sidelines. She, you know, she was super domestic. Most of it is because she's like, y'all gonna come to my house anyway. I'm a, your mama gonna pay me to come and cook. I'm gonna take your mama money and you gonna eat at your table. But but when you put that together and you were bringing kind of the more race to the forefront of this story and changing it just from being a working class 90s woman to upper class 90s woman and they're both white. What was like the feeling or the thought in the writer's room when it was became obvious? Like you said, Pauline is, please let her be black. I want to tell this story. It was like, you know, what was kind of the vibe and the process to bringing that forward and making sure that it, felt authentic when you rooted in this story? It was hard. I was terrified. I was worried we weren't going to pull it off. I just kept thinking, holy shit, it's the year that it is. And we are going to tell a story about a black woman working in a white woman's house. And we're going to try to, and, and that's not what the story is about at all. That's not what the book is about. However, the minute that you cast Carrie Washington, now we have to talk about race in a way that Celeste didn't have to in the book in the same way. Do you know what I'm saying? So my initial feeling was was like literal fear and being like, how the, how are we going to do this? And it, and it changed things. It changed Mia. The, Mia is, is much softer in the book and we've gotten that critique. And she's, and I, I, I problematized that too. I said, even in a version where we kept the character, not that she was white, but if, if Mia was white in the show, I would still be troubled by a domestic worker who is caretaking for everybody in the house in some way. She has these clashes with Elena, but even they're a little bit, they're softer in the novel. The Lexi storyline became very different. By the time episode five rolls around, do we want to see Mia caretaking for Lexi like she does in the book, making her food, tucking her in, making sure she's okay? She's okay. No. And I probably lost my voice screaming <laughs> when we were breaking episode five about how much we couldn't do that. And honestly, I was just never, I was never sure until the episode aired. And I always would say this, I would say, to the other black writers in the room who we would, you know, we would talk and sometimes we would say like, okay, that's going to be a great scene. Or like, I'm glad we, we fought for this because this, this feels better now. And I would always say, I'm not saying anything until the episode airs and black women collectively tell us that we did okay. And, it, and, and of course there, are, you know, there's no monolith, there's no one voice, but now I feel like, okay, all those times when we said Mia should not smile Mia should not give her even an inch in this scene made a difference in the way that the story ended up presenting itself. In all honesty, the thing that you took out of Mia was the thing that disconnected me from her when I was reading the book. There's this weird, you call it softness. It was like, it was kind of like this willful naivety. Like she kept pushing herself to, to hold on to something. And after watching episode six, I was like, well, now that I know the story with her family and I've seen what happened with Warren, maybe that would make more sense. But but you gave it to her somewhere else. So she, it was still in her core and it was still in her, her personality. Yeah. But I, I feel like you guys taking out that, giving her an edge that felt 
realistic, not only made it contemporary, but it also made it super 90s because that sounds like that's my mama. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and I would agree with about the, the I think the softness comes in absolutely with the relationship with Izzy. And yes. it can be very hot and cold, but but towards the end, I think if there's a consistent warmness because she recognizes a struggle, like an internally struggling artist to another, especially an internally struggling queer artist to another. Yeah. So I think that that is super, super, super helpful. And also, if she wasn't black, that scene in the last episode where she drags Elena, she's been waiting to give it to her, yeah, for Phil. That scene in particular does not would not hit as hard <laughs> if it was not a black woman, specifically Carrie Washington, just waiting, just waiting. She's like, I got the bomb. Let me know because I can detonate it. So wonderful. But so, even in so the middle of episode six, we were talking about this joy. Um, if she hadn't been white and you were talking about the development of the relationship and the dynamics of power that were coming up between them, as you did flashback to how they got to who they are as adults, I don't think it would have hit the same. You wouldn't have had the same connection. You may not have drawn the same connections to what rejection of their mother in the different ways that it did, because it, it wouldn't have felt the same if they had both been white. And I'm maybe that's just because I'm black. It could be. I mean, I can't not be black. I'm black all day. But yeah, watching Mia go home... And her parents, who were super religious, say, if you go to his funeral, there'll be questions. I was like, that is the blackest shit. Oh, my God. (laughs) So we both grew up in church. She's Catholic. I'm Pentecostal, but really, like, non-denominational. And that scene in particular, I was just like, yep. And I was like, and they Caribbean parents? I was like, yep. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, "Mm, hmm. It's like my grandma too. A lot of the, you know, a lot of people were like, oh my God, how could they not let her go to the funeral? And then a lot of black people were like, eh, I can kind of see how that happened. And then West Indian people were like, oh yeah, no, she was never going. I don't know why she put the dress on. She yeah, she should have just like, had her hair tied up and sitting on the couch. She wasn't going anywhere. Right. Like, I, I think we could all agree, not cool. She absolutely should have been able to go. But, like, we all know somebody. Yeah. Or we have directly experienced it where we were just like, ah, like. Yeah, we talked about that scene a lot and how harsh it would be. And I just, but it's interesting now being a mom and telling these stories, I can easily go, okay, Shannon, you're a mom. Your daughter shows up very pregnant. No forewarning. You just, you're getting ready to bury another child you're not going to make the best decision of your life. You're going to make an emotional decision. And yes, you are thinking about um, being at a funeral surrounded by people being asked a question. And what we what we talked about was, this isn't even a, yes, my daughter went to New York and got pregnant and she's gonna be a mom. That's not, that's not the answer that Mia's mom would be able to give to people. The answer is, yes, my daughter is pregnant. No, she's not keeping the child. She's having the child for somebody else. Yeah. And they paid her She's so that she can mom. stay in art school. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's a very 90s thing. Like, okay, black women were not going out in the 90s offering up their womb. Let me rephrase that. The, <laughs> the dynamic that you gave to her family where they talked about her going to New York and their hesitation wow. and they're deeply going to lay hands on you and pray that you come back the same child that you left and that that was actually a mandate they required. And then for you to walk in, it could have been anything. 
like she could have changed her style and mode of dress. I mean, she could have come with a friend. Pauline could have come with her, you know, it truly could have been anything. And you would have seen this, this, this rejection and, and because it was a time of crisis. And even though, you know, people are making bad decisions, the way that you guys played it, and 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 you and the words that you gave him to say between what you use from the book and then what you pulled that was more authentic to come from a black experience in this moment it was almost it was it was actually uncanny but it was i mean i was like the times the, the irony of the name of this episode was really pertinent but yeah like i texted a friend of mine i'm like how you doing over there she's like girl girl my mama just watched this she's <laughs> she's in my phone because she actually was a surrogate when we were in college and it was because her parents couldn't make her tuition for her last semester. And somebody in her class was like, you are, you have a really high IQ. You're a bachelor of science major. You're beautiful. You're going to an elite college. People will pay for your eggs. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. she originally was just looking to sell her eggs. Cause I was like, sure. That's what you want to do with your life. I mean, take hormones and then, give away the the, okay and then she ran into this couple who were friends with a professor and then she agreed to surrogacy and they agreed to cover her tuition and given the tuition was over fifty thousand dollars i mean yeah Yeah. so she didn't tell her parent like they put her in apartment she stayed in summer school told her mom i'm taking extra credit so i can graduate early her parents surprised her um and came to visit oh my god story yes I was sitting here. I was like, what? It's, and this was in 95. Okay. So, yeah. And we knew when her mama got there. Because we heard her. We heard her very black, very Jamaican mother from the student center, which was probably 12 buildings away. I was like, mm. oh, my God. <laughs> we should go make sure no one gets murdered. So watching all of this and having a different perspective on it. And her mom was like, I don't know why they didn't just say that she was doing something and go to the church and have them lay hands and that she's giving a gift of life. And her daughter's like, you don't know why. You don't know at all. Oh, this is amazing. I love it. It was perfect. I mean, you guys, I like, you hit a lot of notes for a lot of people. Like, it was a very common thing that if you went to um, uh, college, especially if you were a black person at a PWI who wasn't there, even if you were on an athletic scholarship, people used to come and solicit you to see if you would be willing to donate eggs or do surrogacy. And the offers were ludicrous. Ain't nobody ever followed nobody off a train or a subway that I know of. <laughs> but it was a huge thing in the mid-80s through the end of 90s for for surrogacy and yeah. egg donation. So I thought this it was incredible. I thought it was brilliantly done. And yeah, I watched a lot of my friends' parents flashback, at least even to the conversation. Cause like my old roommate is super white. Like, I don't know if she could possibly get whiter. This is her, she says it, I can say it. She's like, I'm so white, it's bad. Like, you have to point out to me when I've been too white in a conversation. She got approached. She got approached for surrogacy when we were in school and she talked to her mom and decided against it. Cause her mother was like, that's not who we are. We don't do that. If you're having a baby, you're keeping the baby. So unless you're prepared to be somebody's mama, you know. Right. And so they talked to her priest and the priest was like, oh, no, that's like, you know, that's not that's not God's plan. We don't play 
with like, you know, it's God's will. They can't have babies. So watching all of this is a part of Mia's story, but from the perspective of the person who's the surrogate, like not Madeline, the mother. Right. Um, right. Which is a different story. And, you know, I wish we'd, I wish I fucking love Madeline. I wish yeah. we could have had more time with her. I love Nicole Bahari. She was so incredible. Um, but that's, that's another that's another element to the story. And we didn't even know what you just like that, what you just said about the history of surrogacy. We did not talk about that that much. We, you know, we pulled what we could from the book and we did some research, but that's, I'm literally like, that's a whole other TV show. That's a whole other movie right there. That's incredible. Yeah. I went, I also went to a PWI, but I did not go to a PWI in the nineties or eighties. I went to a PWI in the 2000, uh, because I'm the baby. Yes. Um, but I will say, and then I'll ask my final question. Um, I will say the relationship between, or non-relationship between Lexi and Pearl really resonated with me. I went to an Ivy League school. I did not go to Yale, I went to Penn. Um, but to see her work get stolen, <laughs> that brought a, a specific level of pain in my heart because I remember the strife I went through trying to apply and write the right story. And it had to be a mixture of showcasing my intelligence and kind of capitalizing off of me being in a lower economic uh, situation, being from the South Bronx and being a black girl from the South Bronx, daring right. to apply for Ivy League school. And so right. to see that get co-opted and stolen for Lexi to get in, I was raging. I just want to let y'all know. <laughs> it, opened, it brought some things up into me that I was just like, wow, I didn't know I was tight about this, but I am. And yeah. I don't like that I feel this way. Just want yeah. to point that out because that was something very personal to me where I was just like, no, this is unacceptable. Yeah, little fires <laughs> everywhere let you know a whole lot of thing about yourself you didn't know you were tight about. So like, amazing. It, it, re it completely reintroduced the idea of what a microaggression is and the role it plays in everyday life and how it's embedded in generational familial trauma. So, yes. yeah, I broke a remote. Um, <laughs> and it. I threw my laptop at one point in time and I've now damaged an HDMI cable so I need a new one you have to move all the technology yeah. away yeah. from you yeah I didn't watch this on the all yeah. going I, forward yeah it is all pure like listen I, listen I hope Reese is having a wonderful quarantine but she did that job a little too well Ooh, she shuts me out every episode I was just sitting there like Reese I love you. I think you are a wonderful actress. I think you are a wonderful human being, but why? But the scream. <laughs> but the scream. But in your episodes, particularly, you guys decided to actually use younger actresses as younger Reese, uh, as younger Mia and younger Elena. And I listened to the official podcast where they were talking about how they like, you know, soft stalked Carrie and Reese to kind of get a sensibility but when you were writing them and you knew that you were actually going to have younger actors what, what what did you feel like that gave you kind of like the idea or the freedom that you could do when you were bringing this and visualizing it to life it's so interesting when I wrote it that was not the plan we had not decided that that younger actors would be cast so we were still working under the idea that maybe you know you would do like the Americans does and you would put uh, you know, Reese in a ponytail, give her some bangs, you know, like that was, we were still thinking about using the same actresses. Okay. When I found out that they were going to go with younger actors, I thought, well, this is interesting because the episode is called The Uncanny and that speech that Pauline gives is, you know, giving the definition of it, very like 
dorky, very Shannon to put in a little Freud. But the definition is you're looking at a thing. It looks like a familiar thing, but it is both familiar and unfamiliar. It's pleasurable and also haunting. And that is exactly how you feel watching Tiffany Boone become Mia. You're like, it looks like Carrie Washington. It moves like her. It quivers like her. It walks like her, but it's not. It's literally an uncanny performance. Um, and that was exciting to me because I'm like, once we had settled on that as the title and once we, we it took a while to figure out what Pauline's speech was going to be. But that first speech being about the uncanny and using that as a guide for me as artwork, just um, by virtue of casting Anna Sophia Robb and Tiffany Boone to then elevate that notion was very exciting for me. So I wasn't writing it with them in mind. Um, and I'm kind of glad that I wasn't because I don't I don't know if that would have changed the way that I that I wrote it. Um, but they took that material and they looked at those actresses and, and they did what they, they did. And I do think it, it adds um, I think it made the episode better. Definitely. Oh, yeah, yeah I would if say if they're not in awards talk, I don't know what's wrong with everybody. Man, because look, Anna Sophia Robb and Tiffany Boone fantastic performances and I, I agree with the uncanniness because they got the mannerisms of Reese and Carrie as actresses down to a science that it was haunting to your point yeah. terrifying to watch it was like oh, did y'all spend time with them all day did you follow them all day like the process yeah. of that my god just well done across the board but I kind of want to talk a little bit about a part of an episode that you contributed to that was so pivotal to the ending of the series and that's obviously Pearl's poem at the end of of of, of, um, of episode eight, and I saw you tweet being like, "I when I wrote it, I knew this was it. Like, I killed it." Um, and I agree, you definitely killed it. It's such a wonderful, yeah. like, beautiful recap of the entire series. And so, was it a was it a team decision to leverage the poem as like a series recap to kind of describe this relationship between you know Pauline, Mia, Pearl, kind of like the women in the center of the Warren family. Um, and have you ever written poetry in your personal life? Because it was just so well done. Like I was listening to it, I was like, this is beautiful. Thank you so much. I fucking love the poem. I love, I, um, and I said on Twitter, poetry was my first love. When I went to Sarah Lawrence, I went to study poetry and um, had my first poetry professor, amazing, incredible person, Suzanne Gardinier and, um, uh, like just life-changing and and everybody the joke is everybody goes to Sarah Lawrence and takes poetry workshops um even the people who say that they're not going to you end up doing it but I loved my my workshops and so so the idea came from Liz had asked me to write a poem for Pearl for the pilot where she reads the, her poem to Moody in the ice cream truck um and she was like I don't, you know, if you don't want to do it, you don't have to. And I was like, the poem is done. I, I already have the poem. It's in my head. The joke was I wrote it five minutes. It took me five minutes. I was in the back of an Uber coming in to the room and I had the poem done and she couldn't believe it. But when you study poetry, it's really just like anything else. There's kind of a formula and you can embrace the, you know, different formulas and deviate away from them. Um, or maybe I have my own formula, whatever it is. Uh, I do like to remind people I was writing in the voice of a 15-year-old girl, 
So I would take that into consideration. It's not exactly my voice. I wouldn't write that exact poem if I were just writing my own poetry. Um, I am trying to think about you're 15, you're a little bit emo and cheesy, but you but you have a lot going on. And so the first poem is kind of speaking to those things and these horses that she stole from the house that she loved, that she had to move away from and you know all these things. So then when we were working on the finale, um, the showrunner Liz did feel like we needed something laid over at the end when you're seeing Mia's artwork and Izzy's running away and uh, Elena is coming to the apartment looking for Izzy. Like she knew that she wanted something there. And so she asked me if I thought I could write another poem. And I was like, absolutely. And the reason that I'm I let myself talk about my poetry this way is because it is one of like a handful of things that I am deeply confident about. Like you should be for whatever, yep. whatever reason. And it's like, it doesn't mean that I think every poem I've written is good, but I'm like, I fucking know how to do this. I know what buttons to push. Um, now don't, you know, don't have a poetry collection and, and having the poets that I do love and that I'm very jealous of and obsessed with. I don't want to make it sound easier than it is to actually put something out into the world and, and publish a poem. But this particular task of a poem that kind of encapsulates the story that we've told and using Pearl's story to tell all the stories, I just, I already knew what it was as soon as she asked me. I already knew it was going to be about obviously mothers and about growing up because that's what Pearl's trying to do. And that's why she's so frustrating throughout the show because she's a fucking kid and she doesn't know. She does not know that her mother is right about a lot of things, but she also knows her mom can't be trusted and she's not wrong about that. So, you know, it's a, it's a coming of age story in a lot of ways. And I moved around a lot when I was a teenager. Um, I had a lot of issues related to my mother's. And so it was, it wasn't hard. It just wasn't hard for me to write this. And um, we played around with it. You know, we tweaked it. We made it longer when it needed to be longer and things like that. But I don't even remember what your question was. I'm just like, yes, the poem was good. It was always good. Yes. <laughs> you always you answered good. my question. Absolutely. Talk your shit. Shannon, yeah. because uh -uh. Fantastic poem. That was a common sentiment that I was seeing across yeah. social was about man, you really nailed, like, if you had to encapsulate it into a prose of here's what the, the purpose of this entire series, here are the questions that are being laid bare throughout the series, that poem nails it yeah. perfectly. And it's also the only reason that some of us had to back down and say that if we ever ran into Pearl, it's not on site. It literally is. <laughs> yes. So, yeah. Give her some time. Give her time. She needed time. She needed she some needed time. beat. <laughs> oh my god every time we would just be like okay i don't like that i want to fight this fictional character but <laughs> she's a child are. and i want to fight her y'all did so good <laughs> Listen, she had to go through her journey and i struggled with it too at times but um but i but i do think in the end you can see you can see where she was coming from on certain yeah. things should she have cussed at her mother absolutely not i'm still shocked she lived. I'm so sorry she that she lived to see the next day. But yes, I, I and and in a way, her poem is is an apology. You know what yeah. I'm saying? And the poem, what I think one of my favorite things about it is that 
it's their first collaborative project together. The poem is in conversation with Mia's final piece of artwork. Mia's art is now in conversation with the poem. So it is this like um, beautiful reconciliation of sorts between the two of them, even as it is like all those other things at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, you see the you see the growth. You'd absolutely see the growth. Yeah. I was like, damn it, man, redeemed this little child. And, but as I mean, there was just kind of like a beautiful ebb and flow to episode six. And uh I like the fact that you're like, you know, there are certain things in my life I'm disconfident about, and this is one of them. Because like there's like you have I don't know if it was deliberate or if it's just something that happens. There's a certain hesitation in the way that you presented certain things. And then when the actors took your words and they brought it to life, and I was like, I don't know if it was on purpose, but that is an amazing voice. And then Joy's like, I'm going to see you should talk to us. I'm like, really, I will buy you things if if you make this happen. Because, I mean. That's what record. So, I'm going to say, listen, we got it on wax. So, get your get your wallet open. Okay. I, hey, you already know what you want because no, really. I mean, I've read stuff that you did when you were at Pace, and I've read other interviews that you were talked about this. And I'm not kidding when I said, when I looked at the list of the people who were in the writers' room for Lovecraft Country, I stopped being angry that that book was about to come to TV, and your name was a part of the reason why. I mean, I love horror. I love that book as much as I love mess, and. You're right. It's family drama. So hearing like the things that motivate you to write and and where you found your voice and where you're comfortable letting it sit and the way that you leverage your own vulnerability and your your you know and then you dovetail it into the fact that you know you're like I'm I'm that bitch upon occasion. I mean, what you need. So it's it's refreshing. It's very refreshing. And you know, you're in a writers room full of women, but you're only one of 3 black women who are in that writing room. So to hear that you actually were a voice and you felt like you could be heard and that your showrunner Liz looked to you and said, I have confidence in you to be able to do this thing. And you're like, well, of course, here you go. It's done. I did it in the Uber. You're welcome. Yeah. These are <laughs> wonderful things to hear. So. Yeah. I'll also say all uh, of that is reflected in the- You guys are so great. <laughs> Yeah, no, I would also say all that that, that Rose said is completely reflected in the show. Absolutely. I can tell that there is a, a open communication. There is a, a, a positive back and forth and constructive feedback within the writer's room because you see that on screen. I can tell that there are Black people that fought for, specifically Black women that fought for things to stay on the cutting room floor. You know yeah. what I mean? But you can so, actually hear uh, sometimes think... where white women are saying, well, uh, you can see the well actuallys when it comes to Elena. And it's it's perfect. And I was like, yeah. did y'all have to, did you drink together? You know, cause this, this is real. And I know it upsets a lot of people who like to read these books. One of the things about these books is it, it allows for a particular type of escapism. And the only person I know in Shaker, Ohio, is a black woman who also happens to be Muslim. And yeah, she's she's a whole lot. I love her to death. But she's like, no, that's Shaker. Mm-hmm. That's Shaker. Yeah. So tell tell your room, you, y'all got it right. But when, but like the things that you brought forward to where you said, you know, race is real. Like you very matter of factly said while talking to us, well, once she was black, we had to talk about race. People don't actually believe that to be true. 
And I really feel like Little Fires Everywhere, and particularly once you get to episode six, it's so very much a necessary part of the discussion about these women's lives that to ignore the fact that one of them is white and what that meant and to ignore the fact that one of them is black and what that meant, but also to ignore the fact that they came from a place where both of them had families that had expectation, that there was standard, that, and for what people think the black family is, it's a non-standard family. She comes from a two-parent home. They live in a whole ass house, no tenement in sight. So, you know, the slight shock on Elena's face when she was walking up to the door and realizing where Mia came from. And the bitterness and anger that she took home with her about she's misrepresented who she is. And, you know, she's got all these things and she came, she was more angry about the fact that she didn't find her parents living in abject poverty than she was about the fact that she had something in common with this woman. And all of that was just beautifully nestled in with all of the drama and the mess and the microaggressions and the fact that the other black voice in Pearl's ear was a man. It was Brian. Yes. We stand Brian. We stand we Brian. Really stand Brian. <laughs> we stand Brian. <laughs> Every time that he came on screen, I said, yep, he's mm-hmm. right. <laughs> oh, I love it. I've heard that from people too. And I'm like, that's, you know, he, it's not a huge role, but He's there and he's a voice and I'm very proud of him for the breakup scene. Um, mm. It took a little wait while to get there, but he got there. Yeah, no, the, the pivotal scene for me was actually the dinner table scene. And when Elena with, with her usual microaggression speaks saying like, you guys will have a lot in common. And he just gives her this look and kind of like, makes oh, a side comment like, like yeah, we're both black. Right. And she was just not giving it to him. He was just like, yeah. ah. Like the fact that he defended her, even though he didn't know her personally and being like, you were like talking to Lexi saying you were dead wrong for taking this girl's essay. And that was a consistent sticking point for him. The fact that he roped her in, I feel like off screen into like their black student union, because even though that was a cover up for her, I do believe that she was doing those classes before she was in like, yeah, Yeah. she went to a couple of meetings and before, and then it turned into a cover up day trip. But like she went Uh to a couple of meetings. You're going to use the black people so you're going to get out with the white boy. Okay. I absolutely believe it was Brian coming up to her and being like, you come to these meetings, whether you like it or not, you're coming. And so love that character. But the way that you guys used it and um, that he was the reason why you didn't, you couldn't ignore race, that it was coming out of his voice. when he's like, I know, you know, I'm a man. Am I black to you? And that, and it was perfect. But the moment where you realize that, part of another form of rejection that you guys put in here was Pearl patently rejecting anything that required her to take what her mother gave her as directions about how to interact with people seriously. Or the reason why the relationship they had with the places where they lived was what it was, was partially because they were black. And this moment where you could tell that her mother had taught her to advocate for herself and to um, to stand in her own truth. But the second she was in that counselor's office and he pulled the, well, you know, kids who come here from Cleveland, I was like, I got up and walked out of my room. And when I came back and she was still just, I'm like, I'm screaming, say something at the screen. And, yeah. and you know, yeah. It was, I love that scene too. We had a, um, it came from a true story and I, I wish I knew the exact name of the article or the video, but um, our research assistant found this incredible story about um, 
a huge issue at Shaker Heights where, um, again, Shaker being Shaker decided we're going to bus in kids from Cleveland because we're not racist and we are, we want black kids who don't, who can't afford to live in Shaker. We want them to come to our school because that is how progressive we are. And of course, come to find out, well, the kids are at the school, but they're not allowed in the AP classes. The kids are at the school, but all of a sudden, all of the Shaker moms, the white moms are up in arms because um, their their grades are bringing down the national average for Shaker or some, you know, like those microaggressions, which I just like to call racism, but all that racism is happening at this incredible progressive school. Um, so that's, ex that's exactly where we pulled that storyline for Pearl. And of course, you know, writers in the room, we all have those stories of white person in some kind of power telling us like, you're not going to get into that school. You're not getting into that class. You should really, you know, think realistically, you know, all those things. So, so yeah, so I love that. But, you know, to speak to the Brian of it, I think I would also say Pearl is going, I have found a fantasy family. I would like to live in that fantasy world. Please don't say anything to make me question this family. I think Elena is the kind of mom I would want. I want my breakfast made, my lunch made sometimes. I don't want to have to always advocate for myself. I want somebody to fucking go up to the school and cuss someone out for me. Elena doesn't do it the way a black mom would do it, but she does it in her way. Right. And she goes and she advocates for, for Pearl. So, you know, Pearl has those blinders on and we all know people like that. And I think a lot of us have been those people at different points. And so that's why she's she's having that clash with Brian. But even, you know, I've talked to people who've also been like, Brian is trash. Why didn't he dump Lexi as soon as, you know, the that as soon as he learned <laughs> that information, which is a totally fair critique and question. That's why I always say I'm proud that he eventually got there. But we also wrote Brian, keeping in mind he's a kid and he wants to yeah. lose his virginity. Yeah. And he, and he likes Lexi and he loves Lexi. And he's having an awakening too. He had always looked at Lexi's mom is a problem. I don't like Elena. I don't want to hear about the march on Washington. That's why I'm not coming over for dinner. And it's not until Pearl comes into town that he realizes Lexi isn't Elena. Yeah. Well, because the way that you guys presented it and presented Lexi, I mean, you could dislike her because she was a brat and a particular type of bougie white girl that just makes you want to put a pillow on her head. I mean, you just, just want to, just, just a little, suffocate her, just a little, not like not, just, just make her shut up. But I'm sorry, I'm from the South. I went to a predominantly white high school. My brother, like, my brother has dated Alexi frequently. So watching the dynamic develop, and I thought it was smart to let them see. He's like, well, she's my girlfriend. She legitimately is interested in me. She loves me. So this is her mom. But then for him to have to realize the really insidious, insidious nature of all that constant talking and those constant stories and, oh, well, you'll, you'll find someone who's a better fit for you. Then him coming from a family that has certain expectations, because again, he grew up in Shaker. So he's yeah. used to Shaker. And Shaker treats him like their boy. Yes. Yeah, the hometown hero. Yeah. Absolutely. And all the connotations of the word boy apply. But yeah. So it even forced him to have to kind of look at it. Like, you know, he always approached it like, well, you don't understand, so let me tell you, and then you can get it. Or you're only speaking from your perspective, so let me show you a different perspective and you can get it. So for him to have to be confronted with his girlfriend doing something so trash 
and for it to be related to race. race. Right. And when he first, he's like, you know, because he was like, I didn't know that happened to you. I thought you told me everything. I thought we were open. So that was also, he had to work his way through dealing with the fact that there wasn't trust and honesty in his relationship. And like all smart, smart, smart white girls, when she realized she made a mistake, I'll say She it. did what needed to be done she, to distract her. Yeah, she put it on him. She's like, <laughs> yeah. No, we and said if you notice in the, the other thing I like about their confrontation is um, in the bedroom scene when they're breaking up, you know, she also starts crying as soon as yeah like like you think i'm racist and the tears come and i'm like hang in there brian <laughs> yeah the the weaponized man we we can talk for hours about the, yeah. the use of like weaponizing white tears throughout that whole entire series because you get a lot of it particularly with the with the kids and particularly with with lexi and definitely in elena but yeah no just all like Clap it up for y'all. Y'all yeah. did it. Yeah, y'all did y'all it. Did that. We really could. We could hold you hostage. We shouldn't. You promised us 30 minutes and you give us an hour. <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> We're trying to be mindful of time. It's, it's so nice to talk with you guys about the show. And I really mean that because, like I said, I was afraid. And I wasn't sure if we were going to be able to pull it off because it's a hard it's a hard thing to pull off. In everything that I that I do, I want black women to like it and if they and what's great about black women is they will fucking tell you yeah, when you got it wrong we'll write and, you a dissertation <laughs> absolutely and i love those too there have been those critiques where like scenes that people are like i just cannot get past the scene because culturally pearl would be dead right now um and i oh, i love the one in the critiques. rain where she runs up and screams get in the car and i almost oh, left man. my house yeah, but I think that that <laughs> happens. Yeah, like I don't disagree with that. I don't disagree with that critique. But what I think balances it is the character of Mia, reminding her like, "Who are you? Yeah. You know who you are." Her yeah. screaming, "Get in the car!" Her saying, "We don't talk to cops. What are you doing?" That reminder on the screen multiple times when Pearl is just like, yeah. "You know, I'm in this white fantasy land. Elena's my mom, and you are you not her time, doll." I have right. actually heard that from my mother when I was like all 12. those scenes so all is of it. necessary. Yeah, you do yeah. the right balance. Like if it was just strictly that, I can understand that. But I think the balance of having Mia being like, even in the midst of my internal mess and drama and her being wrong in her own ways, being like, ah, no, no, you're a black girl. No. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I'm, I'm so glad to talk to you guys. And we were just as glad to spend some time talking with writer Shannon Houston from the Little Fires Everywhere writing room. Stay tuned for more from my talk shit and read. And um, if we can arrange it, some more interviews with some more interesting people. 